Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, I'm sorry to say I've run into a bit of a hiccup this week. Without diving too deep or burdening you with details, I've had some family things to take care of that have been taking up a lot of my attention. As a result, we're going to be taking a short break from our cross-country tour. I'm hoping to be back on the road again next week, but until then, we're going to dive straight into our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Liam Hogan. Liam Hogan is a London-based short story writer, the host of Liars League, and a Ministry of Stories mentor. His story, Anna, appears in Best of British Science Fiction 2016, and his twisted fantasy collection, Happy Ending Not Guaranteed, is published by Arachne Press. Join me, children of the night for Liam Hogan's Second Chance, a Tales to Terrify original. Your primal instincts react first. The dark shape at the top of the stairs is a wild animal waiting to pounce and you're halfway to a fight-flight reaction before your modern-day analytical brain tells you it's probably just a black bin bag, which means your flatmate is not only home early, but has finally got round to tidying up and the thought brings a smile to your face. 
until you raise your eyes and the smile cracks, because it turns out your instincts were right after all, and there is a wild animal lying in wait. A pair of yellow alien eyes lock onto yours, and as you stare into the black pupils, your stomach churns, because the stench of the thing has finally invaded your nostrils, rank, rotting, but fearsomely alive, the smell of a carnivore in rut. Heart-hammering you sense, rather than accurately see, the dank, matted fur, glistening in places and encrusted in others, with fluids your unconscious mind persists in interpreting, even while your conscious mind balks at the images it throws up, and throwing up is exactly what you do, turning and heaving the remains of a KFC Zinger burger and half a gallon of Happy Hour Guinness against the stairwell wall. Bent double and clutching for breath, you look back and see that the creature is standing, a scrawny, black, four-feet-high nightmare with twisted arms and short legs, its head wide and squat and topped by two torn and battered fur-covered ears. It grins, and you feel your stomach do yet another somersault as you stare into the hideous collection of teeth, all seemingly random except for the ones at the front which have been filed down to points and are dripping something claret red across the concrete floor. Feeling better? The creature growls. The skull-rattling pitch seems to bypass your ears altogether. You stare slack-jawed, vomit dribbling from your nose, and the only hint of a silver lining is that you can no longer smell the creature's musk. Shall we continue our delightful conversation in comfort? It pushes the door open, the door that should have been triple-locked, and slips inside, turning its head and giving you a wink as it vanishes. You unwind your befouled scarf and use it to wipe your mouth and chin before letting it drop. Laughter momentarily fills the stairwell as someone on one of the floors below enters or exits their flat, and you fight the urge to run as fast as you can down those stairs screaming for help. Not quite knowing why you take the last few steps up to your landing and into the flat, eyes skidding over the red and black smears where the creature had lain. It's at your fridge, rummaging through the aged contents. A tube of mayonnaise is sniffed and dropped to the floor, where moments later a clawed foot splits it open, the off-white goose mirroring across the distressed and worn linoleum. A yellowed, fridge-burnt lump of cheddar is tossed over its shoulder, hitting the wall. It bounces and tumbles back a short distance, outpacing the badly secured plastic wrap, which flutters down midway between the creature and the cheese's final resting place. A third of salami, its surface waxy with fat and spotted with mold, is prodded and then wolfed down, the dried, toughened meat making the tendons on the neck and jaw of the creature bulge like writhing snakes. It reaches back into the fridge and pulls out two red and white cylinders, throwing one in your direction. Your body burns with tension and every muscle tightens as the object flies towards you and you instinctively reach out and clumsily catch. It's a can of bud. Cheers! The creature laughs and, using a gnarled talon, rips the ring pull off, tilts back its head, and crushes the can in its fist. The contents sprang into its gaping maw and over its face and onto the floor. You hold your can like a weapon, grasp desperately tight. Now, Arnold Benjamin Walsh, let's have a little chat, shall we? Although you top it by two feet, it's coming towards you with that terrifying grin. 
and a glint in its evil eyes, and you back up until your legs touch the dull gray sofa, at which point it barks, SIT! And there is nothing in this world or the next that you could ever do to resist. Its grin widens as it pulls across the beige street-scavenged computer chair and straddles it backwards. No doubt you're wondering who or what I am. Well, that's not important. The important thing is what I can do for you, it says. For me? Your mind is spinning. This terrifying apparition wants to do you a favor? It nods. You're up shit creek and paddle dot com went bust a year ago. Your life is a disaster. It was just plain moribund, but now, now it's about to fragment into a thousand pieces and the shrapnel is going to rip you to shreds. Happy about that? You start to rise, easy anger overcoming fear, doubts, and confusion. The creature's smile quickly vanishes, and a snarl later you find yourself firmly back on the sofa, the remote biting into your spine. I mean, you pathetic little creep, that this life of yours has run its pitiful course. You're a faceless, meaningless cog whose outgoings have always exceeded your income, and with your recent tardiness and ineptitude, it's truly astonishing that you still have a job to hold down. You haven't been laid for nine months, and then it was a pity shack, and oh boy, did she regret it later. You have no style. Your colleagues ignore you, and your family loathes you. Thirty-nine years old, and you're sleeping on the stained sofa of a pokey little shared flat in an unfashionable part of town. And if you had any brains at all, you would have gotten rid of your flatmate's body before his putrefying innards seeped through the ceiling of the flat below. The floorboards. Oh, God. Your best and only friend. This stupid, drunken argument and its unexpectedly lethal conclusion brought back to vivid life by this evil apparition before you. For the past week, you've managed to blot it out, to avoid coming home other than to collapse in a drunken stupor, a state you'd be in even now if it weren't high on adrenaline and hadn't heaved up the toxic contents of your stomach on the stairs. How did the creature know? I know a lot of things. I know that you'll claim it was an accident, or self-defense, despite the murder evident in your heart. I know no jury will believe you, not after they hear how you emptied his wallet before stuffing him in the gap between the floors. I also know that Mrs. Howell in flat 11 phoned the landlord not more than an hour ago, complaining about the... smell... Oh, Christ, you gurgle as your shaky little house of cards collapses around you. Be calm, the creature says with a sneer. He's a lazy bastard and won't investigate until after the weekend. So you have a brief window of time to salvage your life, and I can help. Interested? Suspicious. You latch onto what sounds suspiciously like a sales pitch. It's laugh sends a gobbit of spittle flying across the Ikea coffee table and onto your sleeve. You glance down and shudder at the sight of a pink, fibrous strand of meat. It's not salami. Deal. Deal. Fuck with you're doomed. A soft, middle-aged loser like you in a Category A prison? 
Suicide's a better option. Seriously. You slump, dejected. So, what can you do? Good question. The creature replies, claws scraping grooves in the floor as it spins the chair slowly back and forth. I could consume the evidence, but much as I like rotting flesh, you'd still have to get rid of the larger bones somehow, and forensics would have a field day with the remains. And supposing I did keep you out of jail, how exactly does that improve your shitty life? No, what I offer you is a second chance. A second chance? The creature ignores the lame echo and waits, eyes burrowing into yours. You try and hold its stare, but all you really want to do is disappear into the crack of the sofa. Then you pull back your shoulders and raise your head, a final act of defiance. Though what you say is, All right, I'll take it. At that, the creature reaches behind the back of its head and scratches thoughtfully. Yes, well, we rather thought you might. There is, however, a small problem. What do you have to offer in exchange? Your defiance crumbles as you rifle mentally through your scant possessions, which largely consist of a heap of unopened final demands and an ounce of resin that, now you come to think of it, was never strictly yours and was probably the cause of that heated and ultimately fatal argument with its true owner, your ex-flackmate. With a half-shrug, half-whimper, you offer up, My soul? The laughter is harsh and unforgiving. <laughs> Your soul, that soiled shred of a thing that you don't believe in anyway? What value is that? Is it in any case already ours? Give or take a couple of years? And frankly, Mr. Walsh, we don't want it. We only value the souls of the innocent, the unblemished, the virtuous. Souls that would otherwise never be ours. Confused, you cringe on the sofa. I don't know, then. What do you want? The creature's eyes gleam. Everything. Everything? You repeat. It nods. Everything. We want you to sign away all rights you have or think you may have under all possible scenarios, past, present, and future. Your soul included, of course, for what little that's worth. In return, we'll rewind your stupid mistakes, every last one of them, erase your petty failings, reset those missed opportunities, and give you a gentle nudge in the right direction, towards a better, more fulfilling life. As for killing your flatmate, possibly the biggest single mistake of your life, although it has some pretty serious competition, Consider it undone. Never happened, along with all of the lesser mistakes that led you to this moment. It's your lucky day, Arnold. We're going to give you a new life, scrubbed clean, a fresh start. Something you've idly daydreamed of since forever. A chance to go back in time, to live your life again, to do it right. To avoid the dead-end jobs, the stuttering relationships, the aborted degree, the police cautions. Here it is, offered to you at the lowest ebb of your life. It sounds too good to be true. It is too good to be true, and yet, what do you have to lose? Nothing. Nothing at all. The creature bounds over to the desk and grabs a pen and a blank sheet of paper from the printer. Sign here, please. In triplicate. We'll fill in the rest later.
The glare of the lights hurts your eyes and your senses spin as you struggle, your limbs not cooperating. A sharp retort rings out across the confusing space and pain rips through you. You wail in anguish and shock and suck down your first breath. Dumped onto the warm, fleshy, sweaty chest of a woman who cradles your tiny head. You feel her heart beating almost as rapidly as yours. As it slows, the babble of noises, though still loud and grating, begin to make distorted sense. Congratulations, it's a boy. We're going to cut the cord now. Have you decided what to call him? A stranger's voice booms out from the close by, the sound echoed by the vibration through your quaking body. John. He's a John, like his father. But that's not right. That's not your name. You think as the voice hardens a grim determination evident even in your infant ears. And just like his father, he's going to be a priest. You try to beat your tiny fists, but realize you can't. You have neither the strength nor the coordination, so instead you try to shout, to tell them there's been a mistake, that you've been cheated, that this isn't you, that this isn't your mother, that your name is Arnold, not John, that you don't turn out to be a priest. How could you ever turn out to be a priest, that this is not the fresh start you've been promised? But nothing comes, except for gasping wails, and as the nurses fluster around you, you realize you can no longer understand what they're saying, that you no longer have the words you wanted to shout, and all you can do is scream, and scream, and scream. That was Liam Hogan's Second Chance, as read by Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick is the former host of Tales to Terrify. He works supporting assistive technologies for special education students and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. Thank you, Stephen. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our second story this evening comes from H.G. Wells. Herbert George Wells, more commonly known as H.G. Wells, was born in Bromley, Kent. He was apprenticed to a draper, tried teaching, studied biology in London, and made his mark in journalism and literature. He played a vital part in spreading the progressive ideas and perspectives that characterized the first part of the 20th century. Wells achieved fame with scientific fantasies such as The Time Machine and War of the Worlds, which has led to him sometimes being referred to as the father of science fiction. He also wrote a range of comic social novels, which proved highly popular. Both kinds of novel made successful, sometimes classic, early films. A member of the Fabian Society, he was often engaged in public controversy and wrote several socio-political works dealing with the role of science and the need for world peace. Children of the Night, listen with me to H.G. Wells' The Flowering of the Strange Orchid, first published in the Pall Mall Budget, 2nd of August, 1894. The buying of orchids always has in it a certain speculative flavor. You have before you the brown, shriveled lump of tissue, and for the rest, you must trust your judgment, or the auctioneer, or your good luck, as your taste may incline. The plant may be moribund or dead, or it may be just a respectable purchase, fair value for your money. Or perhaps, for the thing has happened again and again, there slowly unfolds before the delighted eyes of the happy purchaser, day after day, some new variety, some novel richness, a strange twist of the labellum, or some subtler coloration or unexpected mimicry. Pride, beauty, and profit blossom together on one delicate green spike, and, it may be, even immortality. For the new miracle of nature may stand in need of a new specific name, 
and what so convenient as that of its discoverer? John Smithia. <laughs> there have been worse names. It was perhaps the hope of some such happy discovery that made Winter Wedderburn such a frequent attendant at these sales. That hope, and also, maybe, the fact that he had nothing else of the slightest interest to do in the world. He was a shy, lonely, rather ineffectual man, provided with just enough income to keep off the spur of necessity, and not enough nervous energy to make him seek any exacting employments. He might have collected stamps or coins, or translated Horace, or bound books, or invented new species of diatoms. But, as it happened, he grew orchids, and had one ambitious little hothouse. I have a fancy, he said over his coffee, that something is going to happen to me today. He spoke as he moved and thought, slowly. Oh, don't say that, said his housekeeper, who was also his remote cousin. For something happening was a euphemism that meant only one thing to her. You misunderstand me. I mean nothing unpleasant, though what I do mean I scarcely know. Today, he continued, after a pause, Peters are going to sell a batch of plants from the Andamans and the Indies. I shall go up and see what they have. It may be that I should buy something good unawares. That may be it. He passed his cup for his second cupful of coffee. Are these things collected by that poor young fellow you told me of the other day? Asked his cousin as she filled his cup. Yes, he said, and became meditative over a piece of toast. Nothing ever does happen to me he remarked presently, beginning to think aloud. I wonder why. Things enough happen to other people. There is Harvey. Only the other week, on Monday, he picked up six pence. On Wednesday, his chicks all had the staggers. On Friday, his cousin came home from Australia. And on Saturday, he broke his ankle. What a world of excitement! Compared to me, I think I would rather be without such excitement said his housekeeper. It can't be good for you. I suppose it's troublesome. Still, you see, nothing ever happens to me. When I was a little boy, I never had accidents. I never fell in love as I grew up, never married. I wonder how it feels to have something happen to you, something really remarkable. That orchid collector was only thirty-six, twenty years younger than myself when he died and he had been married twice and divorced once. He had malaria fever four times, and he had broke his thigh. He killed a Malay once, and once he was wounded by a poison dart, and in the end he was killed by jungle leeches. It must have been all very troublesome, but then it must have been very interesting, you know, except perhaps the leeches. I'm sure it was not good for him said the lady with conviction. Perhaps not. And then Wedderburn looked at his watch. Twenty-three minutes past eight. I am going up by the quarter-to-twelve train, so that there is plenty of time. I think I should wear my alpaca jacket. It is quite warm enough. And my grey felt hat and brown shoes. I suppose... 
He glanced out the window at the serene sky and sunlit garden, and then nervously at his cousin's face. I think you had better take an umbrella if you are going to London, she said in a voice that admitted of no denial. There's all between here and the station coming back. When he returned, he was in a state of mild excitement. He had made a purchase. It was rare that he could make up his mind quickly enough to buy, but this time he had done so. There are Vandas, he said, and a dendrobe and some paleonophis. He surveyed his purchases lovingly as he consumed his soup. Indeed. How busy I shall be tomorrow. I must see tonight just exactly what to do with these things, and tomorrow I shall set to work. They found poor Banton lying dead or dying in a mangrove swamp. I forget which. He began presently again. With one of these very orchids crushed under his body. He had been unwell for some days with some kind of native fever, and I suppose he fainted. These mangrove swamps are very unwholesome. Every drop of blood, they say, was taken out of him by the jungle leeches. It may be that very plant that cost him his life to obtain. I think none the better of it for that. Men must work, though women may weep, said Wedderburn with profound gravity. Fancy dying away from every comfort in a nasty swamp. Fancy being ill of fever with nothing to take but chlorodyne and quinine. If men were left to themselves, they would live on chlorodyne and quinine, and no one round you but horrible natives. They say that the Adaman Islanders are the most disgusting wretches. And, anyhow, they can scarcely make good nurses, not having the necessary training. And just for people in England to have orchids. I don't suppose it was comfortable, but some men seem to enjoy that kind of thing, said Wedderburn. Anyhow, the natives of his party were sufficiently civilized to take care of all his collection until his colleague, who is an ornithologist, came back again from the interior, though they could not tell the species of the orchid and had led it wither. And that makes these things more interesting. It makes them disgusting. I should be afraid of some of the malaria clinging to them. And just think, there has been a dead body lying across that ugly thing. I never thought of that before. There, I declare, I cannot eat another mouthful of dinner. <sighs> I will take them off the table if you like, and put them in the window seat. I can see them just as well there. The next few days he was indeed singularly busy in his steamy little hothouse, fussing about with charcoal, lumps of teak, moss, and all the other mysteries of the orchid cultivator. He considered he was having a wonderfully eventful time. In the evening, he would talk about these new orchids to his friends, and over and over again he reverted to his expectation of something strange. Several of the Vandas and the Dendrobium died under his care, but presently the strange orchid began to show signs of life. He was delighted, and took his housekeeper right away from jam-making to see it at once, directly he made the discovery. That is a bud, he said, and presently there will be a lot of leaves there, and those little things coming out here are aerial rootlets. They look to me like little white fingers poking out of the brown, said his housekeeper. I don't like them. Why not? 
I don't know. They look like fingers trying to get at you. I can't help my likes and dislikes. I don't know for certain, but I don't think there are any orchids I know that have aerial rootlets quite like that. It may be my fancy, of course. You see, they are a little flattened at the ends. I don't like them, said his housekeeper, suddenly shivering and turning away. I know it's very silly of me, and I'm very sorry, particularly as you like the things so much, but I can't help thinking of that corpse. But it may not be that particular plant. That was merely a guess of mine. His housekeeper shrugged her shoulders. Anyhow, I don't like it, she said. Wedderburn felt a little hurt at her dislike to the plant, but that did not prevent his talking to her about orchids generally, and this orchid in particular, whenever he felt inclined. There are such queer things about orchids, he said one day. Such possibilities of surprises. You know, Darwin studied their fertilization and showed that the whole structure of an orchid flower was contrived in order that moths might carry the pollen from plant to plant. Well, it seems that there are lots of orchids known the flower of which cannot possibly be used for fertilization in that way. Some of the cypridiums, for instance, there are no insects known that can possibly fertilize them, and some of them have never been found with seed. But how do they form new plants? By runners and tubers, and that kind of outgrowth. That is easily explained. The puzzle is, what are the flowers for? Very likely, he added, my orchid may be something extraordinary in that way. If so, I shall study it. I have often thought of making researches as Darwin did, but hitherto I have not found the time or something else has happened to prevent it. The leaves are beginning to unfold now. I do wish you would come and see them. But she had said that the orchid house was so hot it gave her the headache. She had seen the plant once again, and the aerial rootlets, which were now some of them more than a foot long, had unfortunately reminded her of tentacles reaching out for something, and they got into her dreams, growing after her with incredible rapidity so that she had settled to her entire satisfaction that she would not see that plant again, and Wedderburn had to admire its leaves alone. They were of the ordinary broad form, and a deep glossy green, with splashes and dots of deep red towards the base. He knew of no other leaves quite like them. The plant was placed on a low bench near the thermometer, and close by was a simple arrangement by which a tap dripped, on the hot water pipes, and kept the air steamy. And he spent his afternoons now with some regularity, meditating on the approaching flowering of this strange plant. And at last the great thing happened. Directly he entered the little glass house, he knew that the spike had burst out, although his great Pelionothis Laoi hid the corner where his new darling stood. There was a new odor in the air a rich, intensely sweet scent that overpowered every other in that crowded, steaming little greenhouse. Directly he noticed this, he hurried down to the strange orchid. And behold, the trailing green spikes bore now three great splashes of blossom, from which this overpowering sweetness proceeded. He stopped before them in an ecstasy of admiration. 
The flowers were white, with streaks of golden orange upon the petals. The heavy labellum was coiled into an intricate projection, and a wonderful bluish-purple mingled there with the gold. He could see at once that the genus was altogether a new one. And the insufferable scent! How hot the place was! The blossoms swam before his eyes. He would see if the temperature was right. He made a step towards the thermometer. Suddenly everything appeared unsteady. The bricks on the floor were dancing up and down. Then the white blossoms, the green leaves behind them, the whole greenhouse, seemed to sweep sideways and then in a curve upward. At half-past four, his cousin made the tea, according to their invariable custom. But Wedderburn did not come in for his tea. He is worshipping that horrid orchid, she told herself, and waited ten minutes. His watch must have stopped. I will go and call him. She went straight to the hothouse, and, opening the door, called his name. There was no reply. She noticed that the air was very close, and loaded with an intense perfume. Then she saw something lying on the bricks between the hot water pipes. For a minute, perhaps, she stood motionless. He was lying, face upward, at the foot of the strange orchid. The tentacle-like aerial rootlets no longer swayed freely in the air, but were crowded together, a tangle of grey ropes, and stretched tight with their ends closely applied to his chin and neck and hands. She did not understand. Then she saw from under one of the exultant tentacles upon his cheek there trickled a little thread of blood. With an inarticulate cry, she ran towards him and tried to pull him away from the leech-like suckers. She snapped two of these tentacles, and their sap dripped red. Then the overpowering scent of the blossom began to make her head reel. How they clung to him! She tore at the tough ropes, and he in the white inflorescence swam about her. She felt she was fainting. Knew she must not. She left him and hastily opened the nearest door, and, after she had panted for a moment in the fresh air, she had a brilliant inspiration. She caught up a flower pot and smashed in the windows at the end of the greenhouse. Then she re-entered. She tugged now with renewed strength at Wedderburn's motionless body, and brought the strange orchid crashing to the floor. It still clung with the grimiest tenacity to its victim. In a frenzy, she lugged it and him into the open air. Then she thought of tearing through the sucker rootlets one by one, and in another minute she had released him and was dragging him away from the horror. He was white and bleeding from a dozen circular patches. The odd job man was coming up the garden, amazed at the smashing of glass, and saw her emerge, hauling the inanimate body with red-stained hands. For a moment, he thought impossible things. Bring some water, she cried, and her voice dispelled his fancies. When, with unnatural alacrity, he returned with the water, he found her weeping with excitement, and with Wedderburn's head upon her knee, wiping the blood from his face. What's the matter? said Wedderburn, opening his eyes feebly and closing them once again. 
Go and tell Annie to come out here to me, and then go for Dr. Hatton at once, she said to the odd job man, so soon as he brought the water, and added, seeing he hesitated, I will tell you all about it when you come back. Presently, Wedderburn opened his eyes again, and, seeing that he was troubled by the puzzle of his position, she explained to him, You fainted in the hothouse. And the orchid? I will see to that, she said. Wedderburn had lost a good deal of blood, but beyond that he had suffered no very great injury. They gave him brandy mixed with some pink extract of meat, and carried him upstairs to bed. His housekeeper told her incredible story in fragments to Dr. Hatton. Come to the orchid house and see, she said. The cold outer air was blowing in through the open door, and the sickly perfume was almost dispelled. Most of the torn aerial rootlets lay already withered amidst a number of dark stains upon the bricks. The stem of the inflorescence was broken by the fall of the plant, and the flowers were growing limp and brown at the edges of the petals. The doctor stooped towards it, then saw that one of the aerial rootlets still stirred feebly and hesitated. The next morning the strange orchid still lay there, black now and putrescent. The door banged intermittently in the morning breeze, and all the array of Wedderburn's orchids were shriveled and prostrate. But Wedderburn himself was bright and garrulous upstairs in the glory of his strange adventure. That was H.G. Wells' The Flowering of the Strange Orchid, as read by Austin Gregg. Former IT guy turned spec fic writer and librarian, Austin Gregg lives in Independence, Missouri. Coincidentally, his hometown was also hometown to not only Harry S. Truman, but two of his favorite fantasy authors, Jim Butcher and Margaret Weiss. Both large inspirations in him giving this writing thing a shot. When he isn't writing, reading, or teaching digital literacy classes, he can be found playing Dungeons and Dragons with his partner, friends, and a pride of small domestic lions. Thank you, Austin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, we'd love your support, over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week is a labor of love and terror for all of us. And a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage, tales to terrify.com. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts, so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with assistance from Meredith Morgenstern and Julia Zellman, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week 
as we burrow under your skin with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 